This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Let's turn our attention to the United States. From the surge of demand for vaccines in many U.S. vaccination clinics to the acceleration of Iran's nuclear program and an increase in Russian military activities on the border with Ukraine. All of these developments happening in the U.S. And Nirmal Ghosh joins us now to break it down for us, U.S. Bureau Chief at The Straits Times. Now, Nirmal, good morning, first of all. Uh, Let's talk about the Omicron situation at this point. We understand that more than 20 people in at least 12 U.S. U.S. states have tested positive. The patients range in age, vaccination status, travel history, but thankfully none of them have developed severe disease so far. Talk to us about these cases. Uh, Are they a result of community or travel transmissions and what's being done to control this? Hi there. Good morning. Yes, community transmission is already taking place and that's all we really need to know. The variant is out there. Of course, the bad news is that it is way more contagious than Delta. But the good news so far is that it only creates mild symptoms. Data from South Africa shows an exponential increase in cases, but no hospitalizations of those cases. So the Delta variant definitely remains the most dangerous. Now, because of Omicron, there is a slight tightening here in the U.S. It has come as a wake-up call that while the vaccination rate is high, there remain many unvaccinated And even if we don't know as much as we would like to about this new variant, the evidence suggests that if you are vaccinated, you may still get this variant, but the symptoms will most likely be mild. So there's a lot of focus on vaccine mandates at the moment, which are politically controversial. But while the news is focused on Omicron, we should remember that 99.9% of cases in the U.S. right now are from the Delta variant. That's CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky saying that. Delta continues to drive cases across the country, especially in those that are unvaccinated. All right. Uh, so that's obviously going to stress uh, the healthcare delivery system. Uh, there are many vaccination clinics and local officials in the United States are reporting long lines and delays in booking vaccination appointments. Nirmal, what else is contributing to this increase in vaccine demand? Uh, should we look at it as a positive thing? And what can be done to increase this efficiency to make sure, you know, you're able to meet the demands from uh, U.S. residents? Yes, so this is happening because the CDC recently said all adults can get their boosters. So there are a lot of people showing up for boosters. It's a vaccination wave, so to speak. And last month, federal health officials recommended the vaccine for use in children as young as five. So millions of Americans are newly eligible for booster shots, vaccinations and boosters. This is also partly being driven by concern about the Omicron variant. An average of 1.4 million doses were administered daily in the U.S. in the week ended last Thursday, which was 22% up from the previous week, which included Thanksgiving. So that is generally good news, but it does add up to overwhelming demand. And vaccination outlets like the big pharmacy stores are also in some cases suffering from understaffing and are having difficulty keeping up with demand. I mentioned staffing because that is a very key problem. There are ways to get around it. And what is happening now is an effort to expand availability through multiple channels. For example, a group representing the country's family doctors is lobbying the federal government to send more doses to primary care physicians to increase access across a wide spectrum in the community. This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now, back to our podcast episode.
Normal, something else that's making headlines. Sino-U.S. relations at the Reagan National Defense Forum in Simi Valley. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said that the U.S. will stand up to an increasingly assertive and autocratic China in the Indo-Pak region and beyond, calling China's activity disturbing. Uh, talk to us about these disturbing activities that he's referring to and what, in what ways does he plan to counter these activities? Well, he did not list the activities, but we know what they are. They range from the takeover of Hong Kong to building military installations in the South China Sea to sending warplanes into Taiwan's air defense identification zone to clashing with India on the Himalayan border. And underlying all that, expanding their ability to project force and to establish a global network of military bases. That is what he did mention. The PLA is rapidly improving many of its its air and missile defenses and anti-submarine measures. It is increasingly focused on integrating information, cyber and space operations, which means new areas of competition in space and cyberspace where norms are not well established. It is pouring funds into quantum research and into indigenous innovation to cut its reliance on imports. Its nuclear arsenal is growing. It will reach at least a 1,000 warheads by 2030, and it is modernizing its delivery systems. These were some of the factors he did mention. And he said, and I quote, Beijing is misusing technology to advance its repressive agenda at home and exporting the tools of autocracy abroad. Now, how is the United States responding? Well, he noted that the Department of Defense made its largest ever budget request for research, development, testing and evaluation. It is investing in new capabilities in stealth and unmanned platforms, more resilience under the seas and in space and in cyberspace, and also a more distributed force posture in the Indo-Pacific, operating with what they call trusted allies and partners. He mentioned AUKUS there, all the joint maritime exercises and so forth, to enhance interoperability with allies across a wide geographical area. We will know more about this doctrine when the Department of Defense releases an integrated deterrence concept early next year. He did stress that the U.S. is not seeking an Asian version of NATO or trying to build an anti-China coalition. And he said, we are not asking countries to choose between the United States and China. Instead, we are working to advance an international system that is free and stable and open. We're on the line this morning with Nirmal Ghosh, U.S. Bureau Chief for the Straits Times. Uh, Nirmal, let's uh, look at those uh, indirect U.S.-Iranian talks last week. So Iran walked back any compromises it made in previous talks on reviving that 2015 nuclear deal, uh, pocketed all compromises made by others, they even asked for more. Could this be a move to accelerate Iran's nuclear program? I mean, how was what was the response like? And can we expect somehow some kind of compromise or some kind of willingness to negotiate from Iran uh, at this point? It is a move to extract concessions. There are two levels at play here. One is that Iran does aspire to a nuclear weapon. The other is that it can stop short of weaponizing if it gets concessions. Lifting of some sanctions, for example, sanctions have driven the economy and the people to their knees. Now, the risk in weaponizing is that Israel will take unilateral action to stop Iran from making an actual bomb. But before that stage is reached, Iran wants relief from punitive sanctions in exchange for halting or slowing its own progress towards a nuclear weapon. The problem is the U.S. does not quite buy that. At this point, there seems little willingness to negotiate or compromise, but there are more talks to come.
Now, normal U.S. President Joe Biden and, of course, Russian President Vladimir Putin will be holding a video call tomorrow to discuss the tense situation in the Ukraine. Why are the Russians increasing military activities on the border of Ukraine at this time? Uh, could this escalate to a threat of invasion? And perhaps uh, talk to us about what else might be discussed during this virtual meeting. Vladimir Putin, in a speech to the Russian parliament, the Duma, in 2005, described the breakup of of the Soviet Union as the greatest political catastrophe of the 20th century. So that is where he is coming from. Post-World War II, Ukraine became part of the Soviet Union, which broke up in 1991. Today, Ukraine is one of the so-called grey zone countries, importantly supported by NATO and the United States, but not an actual member of NATO. Now, Vladimir Putin wants the old glory back. In the current moment, U.S. intelligence has assessed that Russia is ready to invade and annex Ukraine. The question is what Ukraine's Western allies are going to do about it. The consensus is they must raise the cost to Vladimir Putin of an invasion of Ukraine significantly enough that he thinks this is not worth the price. If he gets mired in a long war, for instance, or if the Russian economy goes sideways, or if his own image and credibility takes a dent. This is what probably will be discussed in the phone call. Now, the big question is, will President Biden read Putin the riot act, so to speak? But more than that, if he does, can he actually implement it? The stakes are high. This is about U.S. credibility. And if Ukraine falls to Russia, who is next? It would not be a good idea to underestimate Vladimir Putin, to whom Ukraine is unfinished business. He is testing the U.S. to see what he can get. But when push comes to shove, he could care less about losing 1% of GDP to sanctions than about getting Ukraine. So this may not end well, and it is a tough one for President Biden. All right, we've been speaking with Nirmal Ghosh, U.S. Bureau Chief for The Straits Times. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. 